Welcome to this clinical law briefing. My name is Robert Wheeler. I work in Southampton as a children's surgeon and clinical lawyer. I run the Department of Clinical Law and hope this podcast concerning a legal aspect of clinical life will interest you. This is a clinical law briefing about advanced decisions and as to how useful they are and how flexible they are. Advanced decisions allow an adult to refuse life-saving treatment in a future where they envisage they may lack capacity to deliver that refusal personally. Although an advanced decision allows us to refuse any treatment, it is the rejection of life-prolonging treatment that commands the attention of all clinicians, and rightly so. In a case heard in the Court of Protection just before Christmas 2018, it became clear that a lady called Mrs Gillian Rushton had in 2014 signed an advanced decision and these are her words on collapse i do not wish to be resuscitated by any means i am refusing all treatment even if my life is at risk in all circumstances of collapse that may put my life at risk this direction is to be applied these words therefore of great importance since they provide explicit instructions from a person with capacity who intends to influence her future treatment. One of the conditions that must be met by those drawing up an advanced decision is that specified medical treatments must be identified that the patient wishes to refuse. Mrs Rushton's advanced decision was sent to her GP and filed. It should be noted that she did not specify a particular medical treatment, such as intubation or ventilation, renal replacement, or indeed artificial nutrition and hydration, or gastrostomy insertion. Instead, she refused all treatment. Mrs Rushton's health and her cognitive function then progressively declined, culminating 18 months later in a fall and a major head injury. The severity of her injury initially prompted palliative care, but she improved and within a few days nasogastric feeding was started. The court found no evidence that the hospital was made aware of Mrs Rushton's advanced decision, either by the general practice or the family members. So as her condition improved, the decision was taken to replace her nasogastric tube with a gastrostomy, in part to allow her to be looked after at home by her son. It seems that the change to a peg tube occurred almost simultaneously with a call initially from the hospital to the GP and thence from the GP to the hospital, probably in relation to the possible existence of an advanced decision. The court was never told quite how that interchange began. The hospital's record of the latter call shows that the GP relayed the fact that the advanced decision in front of him was regarding only do not resuscitate. No other details were given. The court found that at some point in the relaying of its content, Mrs Rushton's advanced decision had been misinterpreted and that she would have intended to avoid gastrostomy placement. The judge went further, noting the onerous burden on the general practitioner to ensure that, once lodged in the practice records, whenever possible, advanced decision documents should be made available and placed within the hospital records. It need hardly be said that it will be rarely, if ever, be sufficient to summarise an advanced decision in a telephone conversation. 
This judicial instruction may be pretty difficult to implement. Parliament brought the Mental Capacity Act into existence together with a code of practice, but created no machinery or suggestions as to how the advanced decision might be delivered to the hands of the clinicians responsible for treating the patients, in contrast to the Register of Lasting Powers of Attorney. In a technological age, a paper document sits uncomfortably within the system, and the practicalities of flagging up the existence of almost countless individually significant considerations relating to patient safety and welfare, not least in the field of medications, continue to cause hospitals great concern. It seems likely that within general practice, maintaining alerts relating to the existence and continuing applicability of advanced decisions may not be as straightforward as it sounds in a courtroom. As an aside, if the hospital clinicians had received Mrs. Rushton's advanced decision, although its presence may have ultimately resulted in the avoidance of a gastrostomy, the text of the refusal would have necessitated anxious and cautious analysis. In particular, she was refusing all treatment. Could it be that she meant to include palliative care? This could have deprived her of dignity and comfort and consolation at the end of her life, since that is what she wrote. The court found that all treatment included gastrostomy feeding. But where should a clinician draw this arbitrary line between what Mrs Rushton likely meant to proscribe, whilst maintaining treatments that it is foreseeable, in reality, that she would have wanted, such as the benefits of palliation? If the existence of this particular advanced decision in Mrs Rushton's circumstances had been recognised, it is likely to have led to an approach to the Court of Protection, as to the extent of treatments which she intended her refusals to apply to. As a more general point, the advanced decision has proved a problematic instrument. Patients, lacking clairvoyance, often fail to identify relevant specific treatment they wish to refuse in the future because they have no idea of the clinical circumstances of their final illness. In the absence of a central electronic register of advanced decisions, clinicians are often, perhaps usually, oblivious to the existence of this legal instrument. But even if it is identified, serious questions relating to the patient's true intentions persist. I hope this was useful, but if you would prefer to read rather than to listen to me, by all means look at the Clinical Law website on the UHS webpage, or type Clinical Law into a search engine.